The Hamlet Podcast, episode 44. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanmerty. So, last time, we had a really in-depth look at just how much horror has gone into the witch's cauldron. They cooked up their spells, and then Hecate arrived and praised their work, before joining them in a song of black spirits. Now Hecate departs again, and almost immediately the second witch says another of the play's most famous lines. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Open locks, whoever knocks. It's yet another nod to witch lore that they have a skill for recognising when someone evil approaches them. Like recognising like, perhaps. The idea that they know Macbeth is arriving before he appears is yet another supernatural skill for them to display. Some all-too-literal editors add the suggestion that Macbeth has to knock on a door here and put it in the stage directions, since the witch has said, open locks whoever knocks. I think it's more mysterious if their cave doesn't have a lockable door. Either way, Macbeth does indeed appear, and the witch's spidey sense was correct. Macbeth comes in hot, demanding answers from his very first utterance. How now, you secret black and midnight hags, what is you do? Shakespeare weaves a great many of the images and structures he's been using throughout the play into this scene. Macbeth addresses the witches with three adjectives, secret, black and midnight. Again, no accident that it's three of them. It's a simple but terrific description of the witches. Secret, black and midnight indeed. And I love that even here, Shakespeare obeys that English language adjective order that went viral a few years ago. I'll put more details about this in the ever-growing page of show notes that accompany this and all episodes, available on the Macbeth page of the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Macbeth is asking what the witches are doing. What is do you do? And their dark response is, a deed without a name. Of course, it may have a name, but they're not silly enough to explain exactly what they've been doing, least of all to the king. Macbeth now makes quite an elaborate plea. I conjure you by that which you profess, howe'er you came to know it, answer me. Though you untie the winds and let them fight against the churches, though the yeasty waves confound and swallow navigation up, though bladed corn be lodged and trees blown down, though castles topple on their warders' heads, though palaces and pyramids do slope their heads to their foundations, though the treasure of nature's Germans tumble all together, even till destruction sicken. Answer me to what I ask you. In modern English, conjuring is mostly associated with magic and sleight of hand, You might see a conjurer at a birthday party or a variety show, although the word is increasingly old-fashioned these days. But to conjure, conjure, actually means to constrain with an oath, and here Macbeth is using it very much in the way that one might attempt to force a demon to do one's bidding by conjuring it. It's a much more dramatic sense than, say, table magic, 
This is oaths and souls and life and death. Macbeth conjures the witches, insisting they swear by every skill they have, all that they profess, to answer him. He gets a little nod to the mystery of their abilities too. He says, however you came to know it. He's not asking how they came to be able to do what they do. He's just making them swear by their own abilities to answer whatever he asks them. Evidently, he has some serious questions coming. Now, he gives us quite a hell-raising list of the witch's abilities. Way earlier in the play, we saw the witches messing around with the winds they control, so it's not news to us that they could untie the winds and have them do their bidding. But Shakespeare can't resist expanding the image. Now it's that the winds are in the witch's control and they'll hurl them against churches. The witches represent an attack on religion and on the mainstream. As well as this control of the winds, by extension the witches have control of the waves of the sea, and with this destruction let loose, the waves will foment and bubble and become yeasty, like a pint of ale with froth on the surface. These angry waves are dangerous, and might swallow up any ships trying to navigate them. The delicate blades of corn will be trampled and flattened, or lodged, and the trees blown down. We had a hint of this kind of crazy weather happening during the night that Macbeth killed Duncan. Now Macbeth is blaming the witches for this kind of extreme weather, and worse, even if all the castles in Scotland crumble and fall down on the heads of those protecting them, their warders, even if the palaces and pyramids of the world all fall down and see their pinnacles point down to their foundations, he still wants answers. Even if all the seeds, all the treasures of nature get jumbled up so badly that everything is destroyed, he still wants answers. This last image is quite a confusing one if you haven't been reading St. Augustine, and you'd be forgiven for that since it's a very obscure reference even within his work. But in St. Augustine's work on the Trinity, there's quite a long paragraph. It's section 3.8 if you want to go and find it. And it's all about the seeds, or germans, that make up the universe. Augustine is actually talking about magic, so it makes sense for Shakespeare to be echoing this major writer here. We also have to bear in mind that Shakespeare was never far from a nod to King James in the audience. And he's building up some truly spectacular royal flattery later in this very scene. But what is interesting right here is that, as well as his obsession with witches, King James was probably already at work on the arrangement and planning of what would become the King James Bible a few years after this play was written. Augustine was a major scholar and philosopher of the Bible, and there are even theories and analyses of the Gospels that are named after him. So even here, While Macbeth is conjuring these secret black and midnight hags, Shakespeare manages to flatter James with both his favourite things, witches and Bible study. Earlier in the play, Macbeth asked the witches if they could look into the seeds of time and see which grain will grow and which will not. Here we're getting this nod to St Augustine, who insists that all the seeds in creation are made by God, no matter what magic is visited upon them. The treasure of nature's Germans is all of God's work, no matter what havoc these witches may unleash. 
but Macbeth is saying that they can do their worst, but they must answer him. Goodness knows what King James might have gotten from all of this, but I'm fairly sure he would have gotten the reference. This whole big speech also echoes a variety of references to another witch, Medea, in a variety of Roman poems. Now, we talked about Medea earlier in the play quite a bit, but in Latin poetry, Medea was often addressed with lists of the magical things that she had done or could do. And here, Macbeth is echoing this kind of tradition, addressing his witches with this list of these various violent, dangerous and transgressive abilities that they have. I conjure you, by that which you profess, howe'er you came to know it, answer me. Though you untie the winds and let them fight against the churches, though the yeasty waves confound and swallow navigation up, though bladed corn be lodged and trees blown down, though castles topple on their warders' heads, though palaces and pyramids do slope their heads to their foundations, though the treasure of nature's Germans tumble all together, even till destruction sicken, answer me to what I ask you. With typical flair and balance, after such a gushing speech, Shakespeare has the witches respond to Macbeth's demands with barely a word each. They say, speak, demand, will answer. It is very rare for a single line of verse to be shared between four speaking characters, but this is what we have here. To what I ask you, speak, demand, will answer. Maybe Macbeth is taken by surprise that they agree to this, but the first witch does one better and makes an offer. She asks, Say, if that's rather hear it from our mouths or from our masters. This is even more scary. She's saying that Macbeth can get his answers from the witches themselves or from their masters. Shakespeare is deliberately vague here, Ambiguity is always the most powerful approach, especially in horror. The witch is giving Macbeth the chance to traffic directly with her masters, without saying who or what they are. At some level, it's the devil. Again, we got plenty of hellish nods and references from the porter. Now, it feels, we're very close to hell, not least since Hecate sowed the seed when she said that the witches would meet at Acheron in the underworld. Macbeth has made this infernal journey here to see the witches again, and now they're offering him the chance to speak with the higher-ups, or perhaps the lower-downs. Done well on stage, it's intensely dramatic. No more than Macbeth himself, we're on the edge of our seats wondering who or what might be about to appear. Macbeth makes a decision. He says, Call him. Let me see him. So he's prepared to deal with the witch's master, or masters. Demons, goddesses, Satan himself. Who knows? This clearly requires a system upgrade for the potion the witches brewed, and so they add some even more horrendous ingredients into the cauldron. It's the first witch who does it, and she says, Pour in sow's blood that hath eaten her nine pharaoh. Grease that sweaten from the murderer's gibbet throw into the flame. 
pig's blood seems to be the great staple of horror and wickedness in entertainment, then as now. But perhaps it all comes from here. It's not just the blood of any sow, mind you, but that of a mother pig that has eaten all nine of her litter of pigs, her pharaoh. A mother killing or consuming her young is a grim image, totally against nature, and I wonder if we're supposed to be thinking of Lady Macbeth's own violent image that she would have been prepared to murder and dash the brains out of her own suckling child, if necessary, earlier in the play. Medea, her again, is also a mother who killed her children. This is all a heady mix of references and echoes smoking in this vile cauldron. As if the blood of a matricidal cannibal pig wasn't enough, the first witch also drops in some grease that has oozed onto the gibbet, the wooden frame on which a murderer would have been hanged. There have been so many nods to high-profile convictions and public executions and the gunpowder plot and equivocators and Catholic priests and God knows what already, it's all the more colourful to include this tactile, unpleasant ingredient here. Macbeth himself is a murderer, so perhaps is the witch taunting him with his own potential future here now, adding a drop of sweaty grease harvested from the scaffold where those who would kill a king should be executed. All three witches conclude the revised charm now, as they say, Come, high or low, thyself and office deftly show. The rhymes throw, low, and now show, wind up the charm and summon the hellish apparition that Macbeth has requested. They're going to appear themselves and also show what they're good for, their office deftly show. What on earth the first audience must have thought of this scene is anyone's guess. But to give you a little glimmer of that anticipation, I'm going to end here for the week, and we'll see just what the witches have summoned in the next episode. I want to give a particularly big thank you this week to all of you regular listeners who tune in every week to this podcast. In the last few days, we cleared 400,000 streams of the podcast in its entire history. To me, this is an insane number. For a personal project that isn't sponsored, and won't ever be, I'm just delighted that it has managed to reach this many people. Of course, I'd love to hit a million. Why not? So by all means, please do stay tuned, tell your friends, share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it. If you are on the website and you feel so inclined, you could always buy me a coffee to celebrate this milestone. And a huge, huge thank you of those of you who've been generous enough to do so already. I hope you're very well. Thank you again. And I'll speak to you next time.